Well, what a great time of worship this morning. Thanks for singing out on those songs. I love that last song about rest and being still because of what God has done for us and the relationship he's made possible for us. What an awesome thing to get to praise God about together. Uh, If you're new today, welcome. My name is Adam. I'm one of the pastors here at First Free Church. Thanks so much for being with us. If you're watching online right now, thanks for doing that as well. I hope you've had a great time worshiping God through our singing. And now we get to worship him through opening up the word of God. So we're going to do that today. Uh, Before we do, though, I want to make sure you're all aware of something. After this service, we're going to have something out on our North Courtyard called Cookout for a Cause. And for the last few weeks, we've been inviting you to bring canned goods to provide for a local food pantry. And it's a a food pantry. They do it in a really neat way. They're set up like a grocery store so people can come and basically shop for what they need. It's a great opportunity uh, for people that have a need for food to get that food, and we can help provide for that. Last year, we did this. Hundreds of cans of food donated. So um, if if you did bring stuff with you, great. You can drop it off at the North Courtyard As you head out to the cookout today, we've got free food there for everybody. It'll be just a great time to hang out and uh, and enjoy some time there together. So make sure that you're out there for cookout for a cause right after this service, right throughout these doors, through the activity center and into the North Courtyard. Uh, This week was pretty crazy, wasn't it? I mean, we had temperatures in the 90s. Um, We had had 700 as a big number for some reason, and so that was pretty awesome. Lots lots of good stuff happened this week. It was a fun week. I hope you had fun. I certainly did. Um, Enjoyed a lot lot of parts of it. It was a little weird, though, having temperatures in the 90s this late in the year. My wife reminded me that last year at this time, we were going apple picking in our coats. So it's just a very different feel and experience, but I'm loving it. I'm here for it. I enjoy the changing of the seasons and the leaves starting to turn. We saw that yesterday and just a really beautiful time of year, beautiful season at the church, a lot of neat things happening here. Um, And then also going through this series in Acts has been great. So if you've got your Bibles with you, open up to the book of Acts. We're going to be studying that in chapter three today. And normally when we do this, I like to open up with some kind of an illustration, some story or something funny or something to get your attention, hopefully kind of get you interested in where we're going with the theme of the message. But I don't have to do that today. Because today, the illustration is baked in. It's built into the text we're going to be studying. In fact, we're going to look at a portion of Scripture that Luke has recorded for us that starts with a real-life illustration, moves into a sermon based on that illustration, and has incredible relevant application points that were relevant 2,000 years ago, and they're just as relevant today. So I think we're going to get a lot out of this, and uh, I'm looking forward to it. We're in Acts chapter 3, and uh, we're going to see a story of a man who faces a significant challenge. And this is the opening illustration that's going to lead us into Peter's sermon, and we're just going to kind of go back and analyze it together. So if you've got your Bibles there, Acts chapter 3, let's read, starting in verse 1. And then we'll pause along the way to to look at some of these things. Peter and John went to the temple one afternoon to take part in the three o'clock prayer service. As they approached the temple, a man lame from birth was being carried in. Each day he was put beside the temple gate, the one called the beautiful gate, so he could beg from the people going into the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for some money. Peter and John looked at him intently and Peter said, look at us. The lame man looked at them eagerly, expecting some money. But Peter said, I don't have any silver or gold for you, but I'll give you what I have. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, get up and walk. 
Then Peter took the lame man by the right hand and helped him up. And as he did, the man's feet and ankles were instantly healed and strengthened. He jumped up, stood on his feet and began to walk. Then walking, leaping and praising God, he went into the temple with them. All the people saw him walking and heard him praising God. When they realized that he was the same lame beggar that they had so often seen at the beautiful gate, they were absolutely astounded. They all rushed out in amazement to Solomon's colonnade where the man was holding tightly to Peter and John. Let's just pause there for a minute and ask God to give us wisdom as we study his word today. Heavenly Father, what an amazing story of a man who, was, um, who, who experienced significant challenges his entire life. And then to experience healing, Lord. And we know that this is, this is just building to something that Peter is going to say. So God, I pray that you would help us to come now with, with hearts and minds that are just ready for you to, to speak into and help us to learn and grow as we study your word, God. Teach us something today. Holy Spirit, illuminate your word to us so that we can understand how to apply it and how you want us to live. Teach us something about you and teach us about how you want us to respond to you, God. I pray that all the distractions of the week, all the things that would, would tempt us to, to turn away, even those who are watched online right now, God, there's so many distractions that can pull us away from the message you have for us. Lord, help us to just focus in on where you want to go, and may this set us up for the week, Lord, to live out your truth in this world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, our message today starts with this man who the Bible describes as lame. And that doesn't mean he wasn't cool. That just means he didn't have the use of his legs. That's how they used to say it. He couldn't use his legs. And the Bible says he was that way from birth. Uh, maybe he had some kind of disease, some, some sort of genetic condition. We don't know. But for whatever reason, he could not walk. He could not run. He could not jump. He couldn't do all the things that kids would normally do. And that was true since his birth. Now, it is challenging today if you don't have the use of your legs. But we do have some technology to make it better. We have wheelchairs. We even have motorized wheelchairs. We have all sorts of, of um, uh, ADA-compliant things so that there are ramps and places you can go. You can, you can work. You can do the things you need to do to take care of yourself in most instances. And, and life is certainly a challenge, uh, but there are lots of things to help make that better. 2,000 years ago, that wasn't the case. 2,000 years ago, if you didn't have the use of your legs, that was a major problem. There, there wasn't really a government safety net, and the society was more of an agricultural and physical labor-based society, especially all the entry-level jobs. So it would be very, very hard for you to actually work and make a living if you did not have the use of your legs. And, and this guy had to be carried in by his friends. At least he had some helpers, somebody that was willing to carry him. Because if you've ever been to Jerusalem, which many of, of you have been to Jerusalem, you know that the, there are steps all over the place and narrow roads and walkways, and it's hard to get around. It's not ADA compliant. They're, they're, it's not wheelchair accessible, and he didn't even have a wheelchair. So he had to be carried by multiple people every day anywhere he needed to go. And so they would carry him to the temple steps every day so that he could sit there and he could beg. And it's, it's not really surprising because there wasn't much else that he could do to bring in some kind of income, some kind of money to be able to survive. The temple steps are uh, still a place today, the, the temple mount steps where people will go and beg if they have some kind of a need. 
And people, I think, are feeling a little more generous when they're heading to the temple. And so it's probably a very good spot if you need to, to go and beg. And the text tells us that this was a daily occurrence for him. He did this every single day. And later on in the next chapter, you see it was over 40 years that he was like this. So he's been doing this for a long time. He's seen a lot and heard a lot here at these temple steps. In fact, I can almost guarantee you that he has at least heard of or probably seen and heard personally Jesus, as he's come through the temple multiple times now in in the recent months. And so he probably knew all about Jesus. He may have even actually been a believer in Jesus. We'll see that a little bit later. But either way, he's definitely heard about him and heard about his miraculous healing that he can do. I mean, the word spread quickly in Jerusalem's not that big of a city where everyone would have known. And certainly this man sitting at the temple would have heard about the things that Jesus did. They said that the blind can see and the lame can walk. And he's got to be sitting there thinking, why not me? Where's my miracle? Where's my healing? I heard about that guy at the pool. That was really cool. But I want that in my life. And then, of course, he hears that Jesus has died. And he's got to be thinking, okay, well, the chance of that happening is gone. And so he goes back to what he does every day. Sits at the temple begging for whoever would Spare something. Can you spare a few shekels? Can you spare some coins? I can't really, I can't really do anything else. Can you help me out? And he just goes back to doing this day after day after day. And that's his whole life. And then Peter and John come through and he sees them. There's this group of Christians that are gathering to pray at three o'clock. And so they're going to join in this prayer service. And this man asks them the same question he asked everybody. Can you spare a few coins? Is there something you could give to me? And Luke tells us that Peter and John stopped and looked at him intently. The words mean they stared at him. They gazed at him. He had their undivided attention. And what's really interesting about this is why would Luke have even included this detail? That Peter and John looked at him intently. In fact, then they followed it up with, look at us. So he wasn't looking at them. Why would Luke have included that? I suspect it's because this was an unusual encounter. And it was unusual the way Peter and John actually took interest in this man. Most people, as they're walking by, if they're going to help at all, they might put a couple of coins in the cup, you know, drop it from high enough that it makes a little ching. Everybody around you knows you did something good. And then you walk on by. You're certainly not going to stop and engage with a man. You're on your way to worship in the temple. Why would you stop and spend any time with him? So there's an opportunity to do something good, get some points out of it, and move along. And this man is used to that, so he's not even looking at them. He's used to just scanning the crowd. Who can I ask? Who can I ask? Who can I ask? Can you spare something? Can you give me a few coins? And so he's not even looking at Peter and John. It's just a robot asking robots for money is what it amounts to as he's scanning the crowd again. And Peter and John stop, and they actually take an interest in this man. They actually care about him. They look at him. They, they want to actually lock eyes with him and have a conversation and engage with him, but he's not even doing that. And so that's why Peter has to say, look at us. They looked at him intently and said, look at us. They actually wanted to interact with him. And so the man does finally look at them and he thinks, okay, good. They're going to give me some money. And then he hears these words, which much, must, have, much have, must have been discouraging. Uh, what did he say? I don't have any silver and gold for you. And right in that moment, I'm sure the man just felt like, well, then why are you telling me to look at you? Why are you wasting my time? Five people just walked by that I could have asked for money. And here I'm looking at you and you're not going to give him any silver or gold. I mean, it must have been at least a little annoying, if not frustrating. Maybe he thinks they're messing with him. 
And then Peter goes on to say, but I'll give you what I have in the name of Jesus Christ. Get up and walk. Now, I wonder if the man didn't believe at first. I wonder if he thought, yeah, right. You're not Jesus. I wonder if he thought, you're still messing with me, aren't you? You got no money for me, and then you're mocking me. You're telling me to get up and walk. I don't don't know, but I just wonder, because the, the text says that Peter had to reach out his hand and pull his hand and lift him up. So he didn't just jump up right away on his own. Peter reached down and pulled him up. And as he started to get up, the Bible says that his ankles and his feet began to strengthen, and he could do something that he could never do before in his life. Stand. He could stand. And then he could move around a little bit and then he could run and he could jump. And the Bible says he was leaping. Leaping is a joyful word for jump, isn't it? You don't leap for fear. Typically you leap for joy. He's, he's jumping around. The Bible says he's praising God. He's so excited for what has just happened to him and this healing that he is experiencing. He never got to do this as a kid, run around and climb trees and jump rope and hop over things. He could never do it, but now he can. And all the people around are looking at this and seeing this man and they recognize him. Because he's been there for decades. They know this is the man who was born lame. He couldn't use his legs. And he's jumping around. And they know something big has happened. This is a miracle. This is no healer con man that's traveling around with a plant that pretended to have an injury. And now he's pretending like he's healed. No, they know this man. They know this is real. He's actually been healed. There's no other explanation. It is a miracle. So they rush into the courtyard. It was called Solomon's Colonnade, this, this huge courtyard area with all these big columns where they could stand in for shade, and they, they all rushed in there around to see this man hugging onto Peter and John, clinging to them. And it's an absolutely beautiful picture of healing and restoration and a life-changing moment for this man, absolutely life-changing. And it's just the setup. This whole story is is not really there so we can draw any big application out of it. It's not there to teach us some kind of principle about begging or about money or about disabilities or about Peter and John and how they interacted with him and how they helped this man. It's there as a setup to a bigger message. As life-changing as this was for this man, there's a bigger message that is coming that's life-changing for everyone. And that's why Luke includes this story, this illustration at the beginning, before he gets into Peter's sermon, which comes next. And before we go there, I just want to pause for a minute to do a little bit of a flashback to our first message in this series. You may remember the first week in this series, we talked about the difference between descriptive and prescriptive. And how when you're reading the Bible, you have to be careful because sometimes there are things that are described in the Bible that would be tempting for us to draw some principle out of and say, oh, okay, well, that's how they did that, so I'm going to do that now. And it's not always meant to be a direct principle for us. And we can get some wrong teaching that way inadvertently because we confuse what was meant as description and we take it as prescription. And I just want to give you some examples from this text that that we should be careful about. So, for instance, um, one of the things that, that I have struggled with at times in my life is thinking that in Bible times, healing happened all the time. Like, all these people got healed. And it just seems normal to me. And then when I encounter an issue in my own life, or in my family's life, I'm tempted to go, come on, God. You did all this healing back then, 2,000 years ago. Where's the healing for what I'm dealing with? Where's the healing in my situation right now? And I have this misconception that healing was just this normal experience back then, and God has sort of stopped doing that today. 
And I don't think that's an appropriate conclusion to draw. I would say we cannot conclude that healing miracles are to be expected for every believer from this passage of scripture. You know, the reality is that most people in these days never witnessed actual miraculous healing in their life. We have the examples of when it happened. And certainly there were days where Jesus healed a lot of people, but those were the exception, not the rule. And his whole ministry of that lasted about three years. And so it's not like back in these days, everybody was experiencing healing going on and and nobody had sickness or disease or dying or issues like that. These were very unique circumstances where for a specific purpose, God was actively involved in healing people. Now, I still believe that God miraculously heals people today. And I've been a part of some situations where there's been someone who there was no hope and the doctor said there's no hope. And, and we prayed over them. And a week later, the doctors and the nurses were coming around and shaking their hand because they said, we can't explain it, but you're good now. And I've experienced that multiple times. So I believe that God does miraculous healing today. But I also believe that we cannot expect that to be the normative experience for every believer today. And it would be very easy to read this story and go, God, why not me? Why not my mom? Why not my brother? Why not my friend that needs healing? But that is often not how God works. And so we've got to be careful not to pull that out and read that into our current situation. We also shouldn't conclude from this that begging money is an acceptable alternative to work. I mean, it worked out great for this guy, but that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is not to say, yeah, this is a legitimate good way to to go about when you need money. Now, that's not to say that it's necessarily bad either. But we can't draw the conclusion that this is the right way to go about things. And Paul actually later tells us in one of his epistles, if someone is not willing to work, then they should not. Anybody know the answer? They should not eat. If they're not willing to work, they shouldn't eat. And that assumes that they're able to work, right? Not everyone is able to work. And this man in this day and age wasn't able to work. But we shouldn't conclude from this that, yeah, you know, it's perfectly acceptable for someone to just not be a productive member of the society that they're in and not work. And just have other people take care of them if they're able to actually work. That's actually a biblical thing. Did you know that work is not a result of the fall? Work is not a result of sin. God gave Adam and Eve jobs to do before sin was ever introduced into the world. Work is not an evil thing. Work is a very good thing. Work is a fulfilling, rewarding thing that God designed us to do. And hopefully for almost everyone... There's something they can do to be productive, to do some work, to earn some income in some way. And and for certain people, that's just not possible because of circumstances. But generally speaking, if someone is able to work, they should work. And so we shouldn't conclude from this that that someone who is able to work should just choose. You know what? I don't want that lifestyle. I'm just going to kind of do whatever I want to do and other people can take care of me if they're able to work. One last thing I'll mention. We cannot conclude that the biblical response to begging is to never give any money. And that's probably one of the more common ones I hear out of this story is that, you know, Peter and John, they were a good example. When you encounter someone who's, got, who's out there begging like that, you just, you don't do anything. And it's like, well, that's not the point of the story, first of all. But also, if you can do the rest of the stuff they did, then okay. I mean, if you can then extend your hand and say, get up and walk and they, they get healed, fine, more power to you. Now, that's not to also say, that the right thing to do in most circumstances is to give people money in those situations. And I want to just touch on this briefly because it's not something that would naturally come up in the course of most messages, but it's worth just sharing a little bit on because in most instances, giving money to people who are begging for money 
actually hurts them more than it helps them. It's actually more harmful than it is helpful. And there are exceptions to that, absolutely. And I've, I've seen a lot of this all over the world, in this country and other countries. Um, but in most instances, what you'll find is that it actually lowers the dignity of that person. It reinforces the wrong behaviors in their life. And it's not actually helpful to them. You know what Peter and John did that was a great example? They engaged with this man. They looked at him. They wanted a relationship with him. They didn't just want to give him quick help and then pass on by and feel good about themselves. They actually wanted to really help him. They dealt with a relational need that he had uh, as well as the physical need that he had. And it didn't involve money in this case. If you want to know more about this, there are two great books I would recommend you read. One is called When Helping Hurts and the other is called Toxic Charity. Those two books, When Helping Hurts and Toxic Charity, do the best job of explaining this. And as someone who has been involved in ministry to impoverish people in many countries around the world, including this one, I can tell you they nail it from a biblical perspective why so many of the things we do thinking we're doing a good thing are actually causing more problems than they are helping. And then what are the real ways to help people? So I, I can't recommend those books enough when helping hurts and toxic charity. But I just wanted to give you some examples of what are the types of things we might pull out of this story, this illustration, this real illustration that, that aren't the purpose of the story. The story is there to set up something bigger. The story is there to set the stage for a message that Peter is about to give that is going to be life-changing for everyone. This encounter was life-changing for this man, but it sets up this opportunity that's life-changing for everybody. So let's get into that. We're still in Acts chapter 3. We're going to be in verse 12. The people have gathered around now. So there's this crowd that's forming probably hundreds of people. Solomon's colonnade is a pretty big area. And so there's a lot of people who have gathered here, see this man. They know this is a real miracle. And look at what happens with Peter. Luke says, Peter saw his opportunity and addressed the crowd. People of Israel, he said, what is so surprising about this? And why stare at us as though we had made this man walk by our own power or godliness? For it is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of all our ancestors. He's speaking to all Jewish people here who has brought glory to his servant Jesus by doing this. This is the same Jesus whom you handed over and rejected before Pilate, despite Pilate's decision to release him. You rejected this holy, righteous one and instead demanded the release of a murderer. And you may see themes here from last week repeating themselves as Peter is speaking to the Jewish people. He says, you killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. And we are witnesses of this fact. Through faith in the name of Jesus, this man was healed. And you know how crippled he was before. Faith in Jesus' name has healed him before your very eyes. And this is why I suspect that maybe this man actually was a follower of Jesus, a believer in Jesus already, because we don't see Peter and John necessarily giving this man a gospel message right then and there. What we see in the encounter is, hey, look at us. I don't have silver or gold for you, but I'm going to, in the name of Jesus Christ, stand up and walk. And I suspect that this man knew about Jesus and already had faith in Jesus or in that moment believed and trusted and he knew enough to do that already. I don't know. It's just, it's just a hypothesis, but it seems that maybe this man actually did have faith in Jesus and that's what brought to this healing. Peter says, friends, I realize that what you and your leaders did to Jesus was done in ignorance, but God was fulfilling what all the prophets had foretold about the Messiah, that he must suffer these things. Then we get to the key verse. In this whole message, the, the key verse that's got the, the big point that we wanted to get to. What is the application for the audience there? What does Peter really want to get across to them? He's been building up to this point. He says, now repent 
of your sins and turn to God. Repent of your sins and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped away. Then he says, second most important verse in this message, times of refreshment will come from the presence of the Lord and he will again send you Jesus, your appointed Messiah. For he must remain in heaven until the time for the final restoration of all things as God promised long ago through his prophets His holy prophets, Moses said, the Lord, your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. Listen carefully to everything he tells you. Then Moses said, anyone who will not listen to that prophet will be completely cut off from God's people. Starting with Samuel, every prophet spoke about what is happening today. You are the children of those prophets and you are included in the covenant God promised to your ancestors. For God said to Abraham, through your descendants, all the families of the earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, Jesus, he sent him first to you, people of Israel, to bless you by turning each of you back from your sinful ways. What I want to talk about in the time we have left this morning is the concept of repentance. That was the theme of Peter's message. The key statement there, repent of your sins and turn to God. What is repentance? Well, repentance means rejecting sin and turning toward God, rejecting sin and turning toward God. And in verse 19, he says, now repent of your sins and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped away. Now, here's the thing about repentance. Sometimes when we consider the things we've done that are wrong, our tendency is to go, whoopsies, I'll try real hard to not do that again. Or we might feel bad about the thing that we did. Oh, I feel bad because I did something wrong. You know, bummer. And hopefully I won't, I won't slip into that again, but sometimes we keep the things that lead us into that sin around, or we, or we keep thinking about those types of things. We keep that sin involved in our life and maybe we we do it again and then we feel bad about it. We do it again. We feel bad about it. And that's, that's not what repentance is. Repentance is not, I feel bad about that. Repentance is not, I'll try real hard not to do that again. Repentance is a complete, I turn away from that sin entirely. I'm removing it from my life. I want nothing to do with it. Now this is going to be gross. I'm just warning you, but sin is gross. And so sometimes we have to be willing to go there. I watched a documentary this week about World War II. And and it got to the point, had all these eyewitness testimonies of soldiers who were there talking about their experience and what they went through. And on D-Day, when you had all those boats launching out into the water, there were some testimonies of guys who were in the second and third wave coming up to the, the shore. And as they approached the beaches and they started to, you know, the the door comes down and they start to get out of the boats and they start to make their way through the water up to the beach. They described this in ways that I had never heard before. They talked about grown men who out of sheer shock and fear were just urinating themselves. And so that, that smell is filling the air on top of the, the panic that they're seeing in front of them. And then they get out of the boat into the water and they're not even seeing full bodies. They're seeing parts of bodies, pieces of bodies, intestines. They're seeing excrement. They're smelling it. They're feeling it there. It's not water anymore. It's blood mixed with parts of humans all around them. And that's soaking their clothes. 
And so now they have all, all of these smells. Imagine the sensations. I mean, you want to talk about something that will, will give you PTSD, living through that as bullets are flying overhead and around you and killing people around you, and you are just covered in filth and grossness. And, and, and they, they described those waters as just unimaginably disgusting to make their way through as they got to the beach. I warned you this would be gross. Now imagine you're in that scenario. And you finally get up out of those waters and your clothes are just covered in filth and and it smells terrible. What do you want to do? Get these things off of me, right? As quickly as possible. And I'm sure you've experienced something a little bit like that, where at some point you've had, you know, a child spit up all over your shirt. You're just like, get this thing off me. This is gross. Or, or you've been walking through the woods and if you're as tall as I am, it doesn't matter how many people are in front of you, I will still get the spider web in the face. And I'm like, get it off of me. Imagine that filth all over your clothes and all you, you don't want to just take off your jacket. You don't want to just take off your shoes. You want to take all of this stuff off because it's just filthy and disgusting and it smells and it's gross and it's repulsive to you and it's not going to be washed. It's going to be burned because that's how gross it is. And maybe you'll get a little bit of a picture of the repulsiveness of sin. Sin is not just this little thing that we try to get rid of and we don't like that we do. Sin to God is this repulsive thing that he can have nothing to do with. And it should be that repulsive to us to the point where we say, I want nothing to do with this. I want to completely turn away from it. Jesus said, if your eye causes you to sin, what should you do? If your hand causes you to sin, what should you do? Gouge it out, cut it off. He wasn't being literal. He was speaking in hyperbole, which was a common thing for teachers in his day. He was making a point. He was saying, you have to be willing to do radical things to get rid of the sin in your life. It's not just a, I'll try not to do that again. It's a, I will make a big change in my life to make sure this doesn't happen again. Because I view sin as repulsively, as much as I can, as God does. And I want to completely turn away from it. That's what repentance is. Repentance is realizing how repulsive sin is to God and saying, I'm going to take that same view and I want nothing to do with this. I'm going to turn completely away from my sin and turn to God. That's what repentance is. Now, Peter follows that up with a promise, a beautiful promise. And that is that repentance leads to refreshment. Repentance leads to refreshment. Look at verse 20. He says, then times of refreshment will come from the presence of the Lord, and he will again send you Jesus, your appointed Messiah. You know, some people go through life absolutely miserable because they're just holding on to sin, and they won't let go. And God wants you to experience peace. He wants you to experience refreshment. He wants you to experience rest. We talked earlier about be still my soul, and in you I rest and you, I, I've found my hope. That's what God wants for you. But so often we go through life and we're discouraged and we're in despair and we're depressed and we struggle so much and we don't realize that maybe it's because we're holding on to sin in our life and, and God is there saying, I want you to have refreshment. I want you to have a satisfied, fulfilled life. I want you to have a life that even though there will be struggles and difficulties because I'm a big part of it that we're going through this together, you're going to just have a wonderful time with me no matter what's going on in your life right now. But we hold on to our sin, all kinds of sin, sin of, of anger, sin of selfishness, 
sin of wrong thinking about God and who he is to us, sin of bitterness, sin of jealousy, all kinds of sins that we hold on to in our life and activities that we hold on to that we know God doesn't want for us, sin of idolatry. And God is right there saying, I want you to have such a better life. But here's the deal. Repentance comes before refreshment. Repentance comes before refreshment. If you want to have that refreshing, hope-filled life, you've got to be willing to view sin as, as horrible as God does and be willing to take radical steps to get it out of your life. Repentance leads to refreshment, but repentance comes before refreshment. First John 1 John 1.9 says, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive you your sins and cleanse you from all your wickedness. That's what God wants to do for you. The fact that he's willing to do that is amazing. He doesn't have to, but he says, if you will confess your sins, then I will forgive those sins. We're good. You've got a fresh account, slates wiped clean. In fact, I'll do better than that. I'll go on to cleanse you from further wickedness. If you'll confess your sins to God. In Psalm 103, the psalmist says, he has removed our sins as far from us as the east is from the west. We sang about that today. I'll actually sing about that again. As far as the east is from the west. That's what God does with our sin. He doesn't have to, but he removes it from us. It's a poetic way of saying it. And this is the, this is the Old Testament here. Back then, the psalmist knows this is what God loves to do. He loves to remove our sin from us. That sin that, that the Bible says so easily besets us. That sin that has a, seems to have a grip on our lives. Jesus Christ gives us the opportunity to break free from it. But we have to repent. We confess our sin to God and we take radical change to get sin out of our life. And God will remove it as far as the east is from the west. Listen, you don't have to live in any condemnation from your past sin. Did you know that? Some people go through life constantly fighting the feeling of inadequacy and insecurity and the struggle and the depression of a past sin that they've been involved with. Listen, if you have confessed that to God, if you've repented of that sin and turned from it, you don't have to hold on to that anymore because the Bible says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Condemnation is not a function of the Holy Spirit for the believer. That's not, that's not what he does. There's conviction when there's ongoing sin in your life, but not condemnation. That comes from the enemy. If you're actively involved in sin, the Holy Spirit will convict you so that you will get it right and you will confess it and you will repent it and you can get back on track in your relationship with God. But the condemnation that you experience, that is actually not something that God brings into your life. Even Jesus said, I'm not here to condemn the world. That's not what he came to do. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because Jesus has paid for that sin. And if you confess that, God will forgive it and cleanse you. And he moves it as far away as the east is from the west. And that is how repentance leads to refreshment. One more thing that I think is very interesting. Repentance is a blessing to us. Notice the wording very carefully. Repentance is a blessing to us. Not repentance leads to a blessing. Repentance is a blessing. Look at verse 26. When God raised up his servant Jesus, he sent him first to you people of Israel to bless you by turning each of you back from your sinful ways. The act of turning you from your sin, the act of getting you to repent is a blessing. How can that be? It's a blessing in the fact that God even makes it possible. 
Just the opportunity to repent of our sins and turn from them is a blessing because we could just be stuck in them, locked in them with no hope of escape, condemnation on its way. And yet God in his mercy sent Jesus to die for us so that he could make a way for us to confess our sins to God, to repent of them, to turn from them, and to live a different kind of life. Not a life that's perfect yet, but a life that's getting better. Not a a life where we're completely free of sin, but a life where it's a constant journey of growing in that area and where God is helping us in that. And it is a blessing to be able to repent. Sometimes I think our natural way of thinking about repentance is as a negative thing. Oh, I've got to repent now and I've got to get down on my knees and I've got to put on the sackcloth and ashes and all. I've got to repent. Repentance is a blessing. Just the fact that we have that open door to God to come to him and say, I'm sorry and I will turn from my ways. What an incredible blessing that God allows us to repent of our sin, to confess it to him and to turn and live life a new way. Repentance means rejecting sin. And turning toward God. Repentance leads to refreshment, but repentance has to come first. And repentance itself is a blessing. And so at the end of our service here today, we need to take some time to allow for that. In fact, I'm going to just ask you all, if you'd bow your heads right now, that you can focus on you and nobody around you. You know, there's probably somebody sitting next to you that you know what they need to repent of, but that's not your concern right now. Your concern is you. Take a moment. Speak with your heavenly father. God, is there something that I need to repent of? Is there some sin that I've been holding on to? Maybe I didn't even realize it was a sin until this minute. Something that I need to confess to you and I need to turn away from. And I want to take radical change in my life to get rid of this. I want that time of refreshment, but I know that repentance comes first. Repentance comes first. Just think about that for a moment. Pray Ask God to reveal anything in your heart. Father, I know that as I examine my own life, I have sin that I need to confess to you. And certainly there's sin of selfishness and self-centeredness. There's sin of pride and arrogance. There's sin of anger at times, Lord. Um, Certainly selfishness and impatience, especially when it comes to my kids at times. Lord, I'm sure all of us have things that we can think of that you're bringing to our mind right now that we need to confess to you. God, I pray that you would help us this week to take radical action to remove sin from our life, to not just repent in word, but in how we live. And maybe that means doing something dramatic. Maybe that means cutting something off from our life. Maybe that means a change in relationship with someone. Maybe that means a change in the activities that we pursue or or taking on some accountability that we need to have, Lord. But whatever it is, I pray that you would help us to have the resolve this week to take radical action to remove sin from our life because we want to experience that refreshment that you have for us. A relationship with you that is better than any kind of temporary pleasure sin can bring. Lord, I pray that our repentance would be genuine. That you would take our sin and move it as far as the east is from the west, God. That that you would cleanse us from wickedness. That you would make us into a people that are so visibly different in how we live. Because we have a hope that comes from you. Because your son died for us on the cross, Lord 
May we live in that truth every single day. May it make a difference in how we live our lives as we remember what you did for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.